Let's go through every single package installed with a Linux install image. I'm going through the software included with Slackware, but these are all open source applications and libraries, so whether you're running Slackware like me, or Fedora, Debian, BSD, or even Mac or Windows, you can probably download, install, and try these on your computer. So chances are, you'll be able to learn something from this podcast. Let's get started. First on the list today is KAPI Docs. KAPI Docs is, well, let's just take it right out of the description file. This framework contains scripts and data for building API documentation, docs, D-O-X, in a standard format and style. And if we look at the contents of var slash, well, slash var slash log slash packages slash KAPI Docs, then we see that there are four listed executables in this package. There's dep diagram dash generate, dep diagram dash generate all, dep diagram dash prepare, and then kapi docs underscore generate. And I could go through all four of them, but honestly, it seems to me like the, the one that the, the user facing one is, is actually kapi docs. And the way you use that is that you create an empty directory wherever you'd like, and cd into that empty directory, and then do a, uh, hold on, I'm struggling with how you make empty directories, okay, there we go, and then you do kpi docs underscore generate space dot. It takes almost no time to do that, and in the end you're left with a couple of files such as index.html, metadata.json, outputs.json, resources, a directory full of, I guess, resources, uh, third-party uh, resources, icons, JavaScript, CSS, some PNGs, like product PNGs, and so on. Anyway, to see what you've made with this command, just uh, bring it up in a, a web browser, such as Firefox, index.html, and that opens uh, to the local file on your computer called index.html. This is uh, a somewhat bizarrely limited implementation, I guess, of of this. And I'm assuming that it's probably, you're, you're probably, I'm kind of thinking, you're probably meant to actually have an API that you want to sort of work into this document. Um, I just did it in an, well, actually, no, because it does say to do this in an empty directory. Anyway, you're here, you're on, you're, you're on your local host looking at this index .html KDE, KDE API reference. Click on documentation and it takes you to the website develop.kde.org. You click on the API and it takes you to the website api.kde.org. So it, it, it's bizarrely like a web page of, of links to the internet. And, and I'm not really sure what the purpose of having a local sort of launch pad for these resources exactly. I, I don't know the value of that. But maybe it is of value. Maybe that's actually really helpful because maybe if you're developing and you think, well, where would I go for um, API references? I don't know. That it, that seems weird, though. Wouldn't you just go to kde.org and then click around? Anyway, maybe you don't want to. You want to make a local launching site, and so that's what this would do, apparently. Um, so it is interesting to look at the API documentation. That's cool. But what the script is meant to do for you, I, I don't quite, I'm not 100% sure. But I'm imagining there's a use case that I'm just not aware of. I'm, I'm not, I don't believe that this is useless. I just think I don't understand the the use case for it. And I'm, I'm sure that a developer working on KDE stuff could probably tell me. So that's K API docs. It is a script, uh, kapi docs underscore generate is the script that you would be using because the other ones um, are used by that. So you're not going to probably do the depth, the, the depth, um, depth diagram generation by yourself. You, you would probably let kapi docs do that for you as, as far as I can tell. So anyway, that's, um, that's that one. Not terribly exciting, but there it is. Okay, so let, let me uh, get back to this reference page here, and then we can look and see what is next. Not just kidding, I know exactly what the next one is. It is Capman, K-A-P-M-A-N. This is a classic, you can't get away from this. This is a great, great game. When you launch it, uh, it's bizarrely small on my screen, I don't know why, but it's it's adjustable. 
So make the window bigger. And uh, it'll look possibly, potentially alarmingly uh, familiar to you. If you've ever played Pac-Man, P-A-C-M-A-N, not the Arch Linux package manager, but the the old arcade game Pac-Man, um... If you've ever played that, this is this is that. This is it. There's a maze. There are, in this case, a bunch of mummies running around trying to capture your little. Uh, it looks like a cowboy, to be honest, but I, I have a feeling it's probably more like Lara Croft, Tomb Raider, or uh, Indiana Jones type type character, because that just kind of fits with the with the theme, and it's a lot of fun. I mean, if you've ever played Pac-Man, you know it, it's just it's a really fun game, and Bizarrely challenging. Ah. And once you get the pattern down, it becomes a lot easier. Like the pattern of how the ghosts meander through the halls. It's bringing back so many memories. So many memories. This one. <laughs> it's a great game. If you've never played Pac-Man, then you should absolutely check this game out. It is a lot of fun. It It's deceptively simple. And and for me, and, and you know, my, everyone's perceptions are different, obviously. But for me, I feel like Pac-Man is kind of the oldest you can go and still sort of have a, I don't know, sort of a, a video game experience without it feeling almost too old to enjoy. And and again, it's completely, that's just my own threshold. For other people, that threshold might be um, Pong. Other people, that threshold might be saints row three you know it just who knows like who knows what your what your threshold is but for, for me pac-man is about like that that because it still feels like a, a video game to me because you use a character and an objective sort of um th- and there are tropes like you know like power-ups and things like that but it's still it but it looks old but it's not something like really old like like ping pong where you're just, you, you got a paddle and you're just hitting a ball back and forth. You know, there's not really any sense of like a power up or a level up or anything like that. Or something like uh, even Asteroids, where you're in a little ship and you're piloting it around. And I know that there have been several iterations of all of these games, but I'm talking like the really, really old ones, like the originals, where it's like line art and, and you can barely make out the shapes between the, you know, what's the ship and what's the asteroid, that sort of thing. Um, so Pac-Man, I don't know, to me that seems like, and I don't know my history of video games that well, but to me it feels like Pac-Man might have been sort of a, sort of a, a benchmark in what, in sort of the story that was being able to be told through a video game. Even though, I mean, it's, it's barely a story. I mean, there's not much there. It is a maze and some ghosts and your little avatar who moves around through the maze. And yet that, I think, was kind of leaps ahead of, like, Asteroid or, um, or, or Pong or something like that, where it's just kind of like, well, yes, the setup is here. It is telling a story. You're in a ship and you're shooting asteroids, or you are at a ping pong table and you're hitting a ball with your racket. But, I don't know, Pac-Man kind of takes you somewhere else where we don't exactly know. I mean, we do now because now we have had cartoons and 3D Pac-Mans and things like that, Miss Pac-Man and all these other lore additions. But then it was just like this strange, strange other world where you're doing a thing, you're, you're crunching on these pellets, and you, sometimes you get a power pellet and that makes the ghosts vulnerable to you. I don't know. That was something different. Uh, and, and so going back to that, I feel is kind of a nice retro way to go way, way, way far back, but still kind of feel like, oh yeah, this is a video game. Like this is, this is, I understand how this works. I understand why this is a, what the story is here. I don't know. Again, my perception and and yours could be drastically different. Okay, so that was Catman. Not a whole lot to say about that other than just waxing nostalgic about old video games, I guess. Um, Let's look at K-App template, which you can imagine would be a template for when you are going to develop a KDE application. So again, I'm going to change directory to my demo directory. I'll do, let's do a K fake app, and then we'll move into K fake app. And we'll, well, actually, I guess first we should do a less of var log packages. Uh, slash k app template and look at what the binary executable is here and it looks like it is user bin k app template all right let's 
kind of what I thought. So let's just run kapp template. It very quickly um, launches a little uh, sort of a, a, a wizard or a KDE and Qt template generator. This wizard will help you generate a new project. You will be able to start developing your own software using Qt and KDE technologies from this template. Click on next. Now you can choose your project template and there are a couple that they have to offer. There's an Akinati template, there's a KDevelop template, there's a standard template, which offers you um, in a, a, a terminal based, I guess, application, CMake C or CMake C++. There's Qt, again, terminal or a test application or a bunch of different graphical um, choices like CMake Qt dash C++, Qt Quick, Two applications, CMake Qt 5, C, minimal C, KDE frameworks, and so on. Oh, and it shows you little pictures of what your application might look like over on the um, in the right panel there. That's cool. Hadn't noticed that. And then there's there's templates for plasma um, applications using the, the the sort of the plasma frameworks. There's Python, KIO, K Text Editor, PHP, bunch of different things and you have only to choose the direction that you want to go. I'm going to go, I guess, minimal C++ KDE frameworks, and, oh, it doesn't look like, oh, I have to name it. Okay, sorry. Well, I'm going to call it K Fake App, and then click Next. Uh, it gives me a version number. This is all looking very K developer -y or even cute creator-y. Um, version number 0 0.1. Well, I'm going to add another 0 in there, 0, .0. Oh, I can't. Okay, I guess it's 0 0.1 then. Um, the installation directory, it wants to make home Clatu SRC. Uh, that, that actually works for me. Clatu is the name. Clatu. Yep, okay. Sounds good. So I'll generate that. And it is installed in home Clatu SRC. So forget the fake app that I created. That, that did mean no good whatsoever. But I can go to slash src and i see that there is a k fake app now and in k fake app there's a cmake lists.txt icons licenses messages.sh readme and src if i look at the cmake lists let's look what it says yeah this is pretty much what you would expect cmake minimum required version 3.16 project is k fake app set cute min version 5.15 k uh, set uh, KF min version 5.83.0 and so on. So this is a this is a CMake file. We've we've talked about CMake in previous episodes. Nothing really too new here. I mean, it's great to see. It's great to see one that that's got you know a couple of new directives that maybe uh, you might not have used before. Certainly, I've I've not used some of those. So that's nice. Um, icons, it looks like it's got some, probably some generic icons. Let's look at the biggest one here is 48 pixels. So that's not going to be super useful. Icons, 48. I don't even see it. I, I don't even think it's, um, it says that there's an improper image header on that particular icon. So I, that might not even be valid, that particular icon. Isn't that funny? Yeah, it comes up with nothing. None of these icons... Uh, so they're not real icons, they're just uh, placeholders, I guess. That, that kind of makes sense. Uh, licenses, yeah, okay, so you get the idea. Let's look at the readme really quick. It says, how to build this template, or yeah, how to build this template, cd into the project name path, make directory build, cd into build, cmake, uh, a couple of directives, and then make, and then make install. So, um standard standard cmake stuff really there you go that's k i mean what, what more can i say that's k app template if you want to start developing kde applications k app template kind of gets you started with just the standard standard directory structure that you would expect to use and speaking of developing for kde the next one in the list is k archive which you might think sounds a lot like um an application to look at archives but then you might think oh but we've already covered have we covered that? Yeah, we have covered that. ARC, right? A-R-K. Um, K-Archive is not that. It's not user-facing, really. It's a library that provides classes for easy reading, creation, and manipulation of archive formats, like zip and tar. It also provides transparent compression and decompression of data, like the gzip format, through a subclass of 
uh, QIO device. So it's it's kind of interesting if you don't if you don't deal with programming languages all the time. You might think, well, so my system has like the, in the, in the terminal you can untar things and gzip things and zless and zcat and all those other things. So that's how you would do it if you were going to write an application, right? You would just call somehow gzip to compress something into a you know or, or a tar to tar up something and then gzip to 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 zip it up to compress it and and actually it doesn't interestingly it doesn't usually work that way i mean it depends on your programming language it depends on sort of how sure you are that the things that you expect to be on a system are going to be there and so on so a lot of programming languages do have like a function that can make a call out to a shell and run a command, like just a, a plain old command like you would run. So that does happen, but more often than not, and I think it's usually desirable that you you have something in that language to do the same thing as, as an application would do, except it doesn't have to use that application. It doesn't have to open up that application and do the thing with that application. It's just using the same library as that application is potentially uh to to then execute something so that's what k archive kind of represents it's a library or actually it's a bunch of include files that gives you access to the the same tools that like dolphin uses when it zips something up for you or tars and then gzips something up for you but you don't have to like you know you don't have to make a call out to the linux system running presumably running kde you, you just talk to the kde framework or specifically the k archive um uh, library and, and and that does it for you that so you can tell it to do something like take take all of these files here here and here or or maybe there are files that the user has specified in a file chooser or something and and then tar them up into a tar file and then once that tar file exists let's zip it up or you know compress it gzip it and, and that way we have this nice little tidy package. And then if you have that little tidy package, you can also then use the same k-archive uh, files to, to read a file out of, out of that, of that uh, tar, tar ball, which is quite useful sometimes if you need um, a, a file format for your application. You could create your own file format and so on, but a lot of times it's, it's easier to just use a compression format to bundle a bunch of files together and then you just read those files out of the archive because you know what files to expect. Uh, LibreOffice does that actually. If you look at uh, at an ODT file, it's actually it's just a zip file. It has a bunch of stuff in it like text files, XML files, um, random stuff that, that the user might have inserted into the document like uh, images and things. But it, yeah, the, the format itself is actually just a zip file, but instead of zip, it's it's .odt. Uh, same goes for EPUB. EPUB is a zip file, except with with well, yeah, it's a zip file. I've done an episode on on EPUBs so a long time ago. So if you actually want the full specifications, go listen to that show. But yes, point is you can you can use tarballs and zip files and things like that as a as an ad hoc file format for your application. Or maybe you just need to be able to to read them because a user expects to be able to feed you a tarball and have you understand uh, what to do with it. So that is K-Archive. There's not a whole lot to talk about there aside from what I've just said because it is a, it's a bunch of include files and you're not going to use it unless you're developing KDE applications. In which case, um, you'll probably know how to look at the include files and learn what is available to you. Let's go get some coffee and then we'll come back and we'll talk about Kate, the text editor. Sounds like a plan. Let's do it. I've got uh, my Flight Coffee. That's the the brand of the coffee. It's Flight, and it is really good. I'm doing the. It's called Milky. That's what the 
the the variety is called or the the roast or the blend whatever called milky really really good i'm having it as sort of an americano uh off of my desktop <laughs> my desktop my um stovetop espresso maker quite good okay um i i want to talk about kate which is a text editor but first i think i'll talk about api really quick because it occurred to me as i was getting my coffee that api is a little bit of a loaded term and it took me a while to figure this out you, I, I feel like a lot of people, when they first hear about API, they, they, they hear about it in the context of a web browser, of something that happens over the internet, rather. Um, and you, you might hear about it, you know, because it's there's a there's an API for some application out there, some web app, but but it has an API. It's not open source, but it has an API, that sort of thing. And 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 whether or not you know why that's significant, maybe that's how you've heard of the cap- an API. API, of course, stands for application programming interface i think i don't know api is one of those uh ext- the, one of those acronyms that i have i've just kind of always known i mean not literally always but as far as back as i can remember the term i just i don't remember ever learning what it was i just remember knowing what an api was and i don't remember how i learned that but anyway api whatever it means i think it's like it's something like application programming interface and and what it does in theory is it's it's sort of it's an interface as as the acronym decoded implies it's an interface for people to be able to access functions of a code base without having to actually invoke the code now in a funny you know it's kind of funny because in order to use an api you generally have to use code so to avoid code you get to use more code but the thing about an api at least online is usually it's it's a very limited protocol that you're dealing with and that's usually get get and post post those are of course the html um what are they what are they called i don't know uh html or not html http um methods that's what they're that's the name i'm looking for and and so most APIs online respond to a get signal or a post signal, and that's that's how you use an API. And so if you can use something like curl to generate a get or a post signal, then you can interact with an API just through curl on in your in your terminal. Something like Mastodon, for instance, has an API. I mean, it's Mastodon's open source. It also has an a, an API, and through curl you can read messages, you can post new messages. It's really really cool. You can get information about your account. I mean, as long as you have authentication, uh, in you know, as long as you've got, as long as you authenticate, you can get personal information about your account. Otherwise, you can just get general information about your account that you can see through a web browser anyway, and so on. So that's what an API to many people is. Um, but as it and, and of course so curl is one example but other programming languages of course generate are are, are capable of generating http methods or 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 pro, uh, yeah methods let's call it um signals and so you could have something like python generate a a get po, uh, a get uh, message for you and interact with an API and get information or a post thing and, and post some information. So, or, or, or Ruby or Perl or whatever, Java, whatever. So that's what an API is to a lot of people. But there is another side to API, which when speaking about, for instance, KAPI docs, uh, underscore generator, g- generate, um, the API there is, isn't an online API. It is an API to an existing code base. And that is the same idea, but instead of instead of interacting with a web application or a data set or whatever this API might, you know, an online data an online API might give you access to, these APIs interact with some code base, like a C code base. And so you're 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 learning the 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 classes and the functions that exist or the methods that exist that you can use in your own code without going deep into the source code and sort of pulling out all this raw code that you 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 think you need you can just make a call to to something some class or or some function out there that takes input and gets gives output you can use that 
in your code. And in fact, even like Lua calls itself or 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 makes available um, a bunch of C API stuff. And and so again, it's it's you could use another programming language to potentially interact with something a little bit more complex. So whether you're using C++ to program in KDE, but you're using these predefined API uh, interfaces, these interfaces, these predefined interfaces to, for instance, call uh, to, to find an address, a, a specific address from K address book or something like that. Or maybe you're using a completely different language like Python to interact with, um, what do they call it? Uh, PyQt or what's the other one? Slide? Uh, whatever the other one, PySide, that's what it's called. Um, th- then you're interacting with an API again through code, but to to generate things that it's that that will appear on on the desktop. So API, even though it is very very common to hear about it as a web technology, it's not just a web technology. It is something. It is any interface to another code base, I guess, uh, that you can then use to to utilize that you know to utilize that code. In, in whatever it is you're doing. And that is, of course, what KAPI Docs was referring to, is the, the localized interface to a, a programming framework rather than an interface to a, a web application. Okay, Kate. Let's talk about Kate. Kate is a text editor. It is the, I guess, the um, sort of the, the superset of text editors within KDE. Because there is uh, KWrite, which we'll get to eventually. And KWrite, as of at least last time I looked, so at least KDE5 probably, KWrite has been sort of rolled up into the Kate code base. I don't think it used to be that way. I, I could be misremembering. I, I, I seem to remember that they were separate code bases at one point, but I, again, I, I could be misremembering. But it feels to me like now Kate is the superset, it has um, a bunch of extra features around it that KWrite doesn't have. And there's an interesting relationship between the two, which, which I'll get into eventually. But Kate is, um, it, it's really, I, I, I guess what I'm trying to spit out here is that it's the Emacs of KDE. And that's a big thing to say, and it, it almost frightens me to say it. Um, or you could say the Vim of, of KDE as well. But it, it's that kind of text editor, you know? It's, it's the... It's the it's the VS Code, or the Atom of KDE. It it is a big text editor that borders on being an IDE, maybe yeah, a um not really an IDE, but a an IDE replacement. Like IDE too much for you? Well, try Kate. That kind of thing. Um, there's just a lot of features in Kate, and it is an it's a beautiful piece of of, of kit. It really is. It is absolutely, it's an app, it's an application that if you're not using it, you should at least try it. You know, you should, you should give this thing a chance. We all use a text editor and I don't use Kate as often as it deserves. I mean, you know, in, I could see myself in a parallel, not so parallel universe. I mean, really, I could see myself just, uh, just making a choice at some point to, to switch over to Kate because why not? Um, you know, like if you need a powerful text editor, you don't want to learn Emacs, like Kate could be the thing that you would learn. The, the, I guess the, the reason I don't use it is because, well, first of all, I'm just really used to, to Emacs and, and obviously there's no, there's no imperative for me to not use Emacs. It's not like I need to feel bad about using Emacs and not using Kate. Kate does not care whether I use Kate, like nobody, nobody's monitoring whether Kate is being used on my desktop. So it's it's not as if though I feel literally obligated to use Kate. I'm just saying I'm very used to Emacs and for that reason I stick with Emacs. Um but but I recognize that Kate is a valuable valuable tool and um and I I would certainly use it if I didn't have Emacs or or if for whatever reason I got tired of Emacs, which I mean you know again, I'm not like a sworn Emacs user. I, I use it because that's what I use. It, I, I could I could switch at any time, but there's no reason to. I just, I really like um, Emacs. But yeah, I should, you know what? I should, now that I'm talking about it, I should challenge myself for like, I don't know, a month to just use Kate. See what happens. You never know. 
I mean, I will say that the keyboard shortcuts is very difficult to get away from once you get really indoctrinated into the Emacs keyboard shortcuts or the Vim keyboard shortcuts. You just get really, really used to it. Now, interestingly, Kate has Vim keyboard shortcuts. You can just turn on Vim emulation mode or Vi emulation mode, whatever they call it, and, and get all of your... You can get Kate to act like Vim in that way. They do not have such a thing for Emacs. Which, I mean, t that to be fair, that is fair. I, I, I think that that's a little bit fair. I mean, I don't know. It would be nice if you could just do Control-N, Control-P, Control-F, Control-B, Alt-F, Alt-B, Alt-D, things like that. Control-D, Control-Space, Control-W, Alt-W, things like that. Um... But you can't. Well, maybe you could. Maybe you could go in and define your own keyboard shortcuts. I mean, you can do that. I don't know if it would work if I... I should try it sometime. Anyway, Emacs. It's a great text editor, but so is Kate. Kate has, um, as its sort of central feature, I guess, or its central panel anyway, is the K-Part editor. Or maybe it's called Kate-Part now, I don't know. Um, but that's the text editing box that you'll know and love if you're used to KDE applications. It's just the standard text editing widget that you could insert into really any application. Like it, it's not that hard to to put like if you're if you're writing a KDE application and you need a place where people can edit text, this is it. This is a drop-in widget. You drop it in and it you get all of the typical text editor things for free really really easily and and that's a big deal. <laughs> it's actually a really big deal. Um, I've written text editors before, and I mean not not for not for professional jobs. I mean just as you know for fun on weekends. I've written text editors, and you you you're you can be surprised by how much maintenance there is for a text editing field. Um, you know, like when you open a file, uh, you have to get that text into the text field. And then if you uh, close a file to open a new one, you have to clear the text field and then open the new text in that field because otherwise then you're appending it or prepending it. And that's probably not what you want if you're just closing and opening. So yeah, there's a lot of maintenance and K-Part Editor takes away a lot of that maintenance. There are just lots of nice features in there that you get completely for free. So that's the part that is both, you know, the biggest, literally the, the biggest thing in the window, as, as you would expect in a, in a text editor, uh, is the K-part editor, and yet in a weird way, that's the least exciting part about Kate. I mean, it's not. It, it's, it's actually a really exciting part of Kate. I mean, that's, that's a, a vital and important part of Kate that, that really is important. Like, it's, it's huge. It's, it's, it's a great, great thing. So, and, and and I say it's great because it has features, you know, like it, it actually has a bunch of features like you can um, you can turn on line numbers, you can uh, turn on syntax highlighting for a variety of different formats. You can the, the right click menu is f full of useful things. Uh, right click, obviously cut a uh, cut copy and paste. Sure, but there's also paste selection swap with clipboard contents. So whatever you have selected, you can swap with whatever active clipboard content you have in in that moment. You can look at your clipboard history. You can select all these select. Uh, you can choose a bunch of different things when when editing. You can sort the selected text. You can move a line down. You can move a line up. Duplicate the selected lines down. Duplicate the selected lines up. Just crazy little things that you, you know, like, you might think, well, how often am I going to ever do that? And and yet, because it's there, you find, you find a use for it. And this has been true of, uh, as true of Kate as it has been in the past for me f with Emacs. Uh, and I'm, I'm speaking about just the past week here with Kate. Um, I mean, I've used Kate before, but I, I, I was trying over the past week while preparing for this episode to really focus in on Kate. And, and you do, you find you find uses for these things once they exist, once you know that they exist. I mean, certainly the move move a line up, as, as you may even be able to imagine, is just, it's just brilliant. I mean, it really is. It's just so nice. Because how often do you want to move a line up? Actually, quite often. Like, if you're doing any kind of um, 
any kind of listing, uh, I, I find I, I'm always having to reorder it. And so just being able to just with a keyboard shortcut or right click and finding the navigation, but you, you get out of that habit pretty quickly, obviously. Uh, with a keyboard shortcut, you just move it up, move it down. Doesn't matter. It's super easy. It's just such a nice little feature. But anyway, I don't, I don't mean to dwell on that specific thing. But in other words, you might look at that and think, well, I would never use that. That seems so very specific. And yet, there it is, and then you start to use it. Now, the, another cool feature of Kate is that you can have, and this isn't on by default, I don't think. I went on, I went in to configure and turned on practically every special feature I could find. But there is uh, a feature here where the moment you change uh, a file, it, it marks it as changed in the left column next to the line numbers. So you can see where where something is, has been changed, which is, is quite useful, I think. Okay. Um, it also has one of those um, sort of bird's eye view of the document over on the right hand side of the window. So instead of like a traditional scroll bar, bar you essentially have a window that, or a little uh, viewport, I should say, that represents the application window, the, the thing that is in your Kpart editor right now. And if you click on that viewport and scroll up or scroll down, then you're scrolling through the document and you're kind of, you kind of get a, a sense for how much of that document, where in that document you are. And you might think, once again, you might think, well, that's kind of silly because we've had little elevator buttons on documents for 30 or 40 years now in, in graphical text editors. So why do we need this fancy viewport to look at at tiny little lines you know i mean you can't read the 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 line the the text in this little viewport over here i mean it's, it's obviously just representing where you are in the document it's rendering the document as essentially a tiny tiny little just a little minuscule representation of it so you can kind of get an idea of where you are but didn't the elevator shaft kind of tell you that like you could if you were near the bottom of the elevator shaft, you knew that you were at the bottom of the document. If you were in the middle, you knew you were about the middle, top, top, so on. But what I have found functionally is that you do start to know your own documents after a while. And so if you've got like a, I don't know, a 20 page or, you know, 2000, 2000 line document, then you do kind of, you start to, to recognize certain parts. And that, that starts to translate into where you choose to place things. So you think, for instance, uh, this one section that I'm talking about um, would, would make more sense in, in section 1, or, you know, 5A rather than 1B. Where was 5A? Well, let me look at my little overview here on the right. That cluster of bullet point lists, that looks like... 5a to me and so then you can scroll down to that point and kind of you know you so in other words you you start to to know your document like the back of your hand and you don't necessarily know what line number something's at but you do know kind of what that section looks like from a, a long way away now there a, an additional feature of of kate is that when you so you've got your viewport that's looking over your document well when you scroll when you hover over your viewport with your mouse then another viewport opens on the left of your, your cursor and shows you the close-up version of the viewport wh where your mouse is. So you, you, you can look, or you don't even have to be over your viewport, I guess I should specify, you, uh, just over the document itself. And you can see an enlarged version of that. So again, if you're really trying to just narrow in on exactly the section that you're looking for, you can kind of just run your mouse cursor, just hover, and, and kind of see where something is. So it's just, for navigation, it's amazing. It is astounding, honestly. It is, it is a, it, it is a, it's a feature that could cause you to switch to Kate. It is that nice. It, navigation in Emacs, for instance, I mean, really, I, half the time, and this is, very rudimentary and not elegant and i'm sure there's a better way i usually just insert the 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 term like foobar and then i go hunting for what i'm looking for hunt 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 find it okay that's where i want to be okay got it do the thing that you want to be you want to do in the thing at the place 
and then do a reverse search for foobar and then you you go back up to where you were it's really really just inelegant is it's a horrible way to keep track of things and it's silly and i i do need to find a better way to do that but i i never really gave it a second thought until i was using kate and had this this other uh, this other sort of model of how you could navigate document thrown in front of me and i realized this is science fiction like this is really advanced stuff this is elegant this is really really nice so that for me was quite the revelation i mean again i've seen it before but like there's there's a difference between seeing it and using it and actually using it and and that's it's quite quite elucidating okay so more about kate kate uses the less less common than it used to be feature in kde of side tabs um kde3 was i would say uh, like one of the things that i remember when i first kde3 was my my intro to, to kde and my intro to linux and and to slackware i mean kde3 was what was on slackware 12 when, when i installed you know that was it that's what i knew kde3 so i remember and that was to me i mean again imagine that i i'd never seen another operating system before i thought that mac os was the correct operating system i knew that there were windows machines out there somewhere but i never really interacted with them and and here was this thing that i'd learned about linux and what is this it's a different desktop and to me at the time of course the desktop was the os i mean that's when you said an operating system that's what you were talking about the the desktop like the way that you interface with your computer which i think a lot of us linux users tend to forget that that's that's to a lot of people, when you say operating system, that's the only thing that they understand you could possibly mean is, so when I sit in front of the computer and put my hand on the mouse and hand on the keyboard, how do I make things go? Well, KDE3 was completely different. And one of the things I always remember from KDE3 as being something that, that just really seemed progressive and really way out there are these side tabs, tabs along the side of a window. I was used to tabs along the top of the window because of Firefox, but I'd never seen First of all, I'd never seen tabs in an, outside of Firefox, so that was astonishing. But the fact that there were tabs on the side of the window just seemed to me, again, science fiction. It was completely, completely different and new. And I don't think KDE 4 or 5, for that matter, really leaned into that quite as much. I mean, you can to some degree because Qt is pretty darn flexible. And in fact, I do have side tabs on console now. In fact, I think I did that on on this show, I think I, I switched over to the side tabs. So that's something, but Kate, uh, I don't know if it came, again, I don't know how configurable, how, how much I've configured. I don't remember what where, where it started. Um, but on the sidebar of Kate, you can have side, side panels and you can hide or show them with these little side tabs. And so one of the, you know, one of the things like I said, for Kate, it, it can kind of rival your IDE in a way. And one of the features that an IDE generally has is a list of documents. Like, okay, you've got a document open. Well, where does that document come from? What other documents do you have open? And so on. And so you can have a tab over on the side of documents. You click it, it shows you a little side panel on the left, and it shows you the parent directory and the document that you have open right now or you could have a um a panel for git like the the git history of that particular of that particular uh file that you have open and uh so on so that's a nice feature of kate that i quite appreciate just sort of not really for nostalgia i just really do appreciate side tabs because in today's computing world you do tend to have monitors that are longer then they are tall. And so utilizing side panel real estate to me really, really seems like a smart, smart idea. All right. So um, where to begin? Or I guess I've already begun. Kate is multi, it's a multi-tab, it's a tabbed application. So you get multiple documents open at one time and then tab through them. Uh, I think the, 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 the most of the features I, I feel like, well, most of the features are either in configure Kate. So that's settings, configure Kate. There's a bunch of things that you can turn on and off and set there. Your, your, your font, your code font, your color scheme, 
the the editing, like text navigation, how you want to get through the the document, auto completion, how often you want it to auto complete for you, spell checking, what dictionary you want to use, vi input mode, how you want to save and open, uh, yeah, save and open documents. So, for instance, if you want to force it to use Unicode as often as possible, then that would be the place to go, and, and so on. There, you know, Kate, it, it's KDE. It's a it's a it's a thing that you can configure. You you know this by now, I'm sure. Uh, there is a plugin manager as well here in the settings configure Kate. So there are um, some preset plugins like you can add a color picker to to the to to your text editor, which is kind of cool. If you're doing a lot of CSS and you're you're referencing hex codes for color, it can preview that color for you when you type in the hex code. It's quite nice. Or maybe I'm thinking of Emacs there. Either way. It, it's a color picker for your, your text editor, which is useful, except that I have a color picker anyway in KDE, so I don't know. I don't really use it. Um, there's GDB integration. There's document tree view, document switcher, external tool access, and, and so on. So there's a lot there that you can that you can turn on or turn off. And then the other place, so that's settings configure, Kate. The other place that you're going to go probably most often is tools. Tools uh, is where you can set sort of the mode that you're editing in, like the syntax highlighting and what kind of indentation you want it to use, what kind of encoding you're trying to use, what kind of end of line character you're using, and so on. I mean, there's a lot to Kate, and I guess the best way to, to discover it is to start using it and to explore all of the different options. I think when you first open it up, it might be might be deceptively simple. You might think, well, yeah, it's like a text editor with a couple of extra features. But if you start poking around and start enabling some of those extra features, they become part of the Kate experience and you really, really start to enjoy it. It it can be very, very, very nice. So if you haven't used Kate and are, are looking for a good text editor, or if you just haven't used Kate and you think you're fine with your current text editor, try Kate. The place I've seen Kate really, really excel, I will say, was at a movie studio I used to work at where a lot of people, I was using Emacs, but a lot of people in the office were using Kate. And and I think it really helped because it brought consistency to the editing experience. Like one day you might be editing Python, the next day you're doing ASCII doc, the next day you're doing some obscure shader language that doesn't even exist anywhere outside the outside of this one particular scene. But... All, through it all, we had Kate. You know, Kate was there. It was consistent and reliable, and people used it on the desktop. And it was just something that that everyone kind of knew, at least to a, a basic level. Like you would at least know where to go for your syntax highlighting. And if you maybe you couldn't find the exact syntax highlighting for for something, but you could get close to it and get get some syntax highlighting at least close enough so that you know like c like uh, language or or uh, um or or whatever and and then you could you know that would give you sort of just some visual reference for 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 different stanzas of of code that sort of were, were grouped together or whatever so and and maybe if there were a lot, of, a lot of curly braces at least you'd get some kind of you know some kind of indication of when a curly brace was closed for another one and so on so kate gave a lot of just kind of it was a nice stable consistent environment to be to 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 have available on everyone's desktop and it really worked out really well a lot of people used it with great success and and that was fantastic because i mean otherwise you're just like what do you say what do you tell people well just learn emacs i guess that 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 should handle all of these different formats fine and yeah you know i mean Yes, other text editors could can handle text. I mean that that's not a big Kate only feature. I'm just saying that it was nice to be able to have Kate as a predictable and consistent thing on all of the desktops. Everyone had access to it and it could do exactly what people needed it to do. It could do their code, it could do their documentation, it could do all of the different things and it was a completely sort of "Quote unquote normal text editor." There were there were no you know I mean as much as I love Atom A T O M um it's a very powerful thing it's cross platform which is quite nice much as I I love it I I the interface is a is kind of weird on Atom I don't know if you've ever used it but I mean and, and VS Code and all those other the new ones 
I mean, you, you have to look at them and wonder if people in 10 years are going to look back at them and say the same things that we say about Emacs now or, or Vim now. Where it's like, oh, the interface is completely non-standard. They, they made up their own conventions. Why did they do that? Well, people seem to like it now, but I do, I do wonder how well it's going to age. Whereas Kate, I mean, it is the exact same text editor as the one, as, as whatever text editor you use on your op on whatever operating system you use like when you say oh it's a text editor like if you're picturing a, a normal text editor then you're picturing kate like it's just the it's notepad plus plus uh you know whatever other text editors there are out there it's kate that's that's kate like all the menus are where you expect all the keyboard shortcuts are what you expect kate is boring and normal and ordinary in all the right places, but really, really powerful and progressive and and featureful everywhere else. That's a huge selling point. So do give Kate a go if you are looking for something normal, but exciting. I think that's about all the time we have for today. So I'm going to close this episode out. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. My name's Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open Everything will be fine.